The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we stand, we sit here before you in your presence, people, creatures made by you, dependent on you. And because of what you've done in Christ, welcomed, welcomed into your presence. We say thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that as we open up your word here, that you would meet with us in a, in a new and in a fresh way. And things that are true and perhaps known to us, I ask you to press them into us in, in fresh and in deeper ways. Things that are new and previously unknown to us, open our eyes, Lord, and help us to see them, to understand them accurately, and to believe. Well, Lord, would you do a work here? All of us here in this room, gathered here before you, Please do a work to make us new. I recognize, Father, I recognize that you have saved most of us here, but make us new, refresh us, grow us and stretch us and make us new. And I pray, Lord, save some. Likely there are some here that that don't know you yet, would you save, make us new? We are dependent on you, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to descend on this place, as has been prayed already, as has been sung. Would you, would you come here in power and fill this room and fill each heart here? Fill your people. Rest heavy upon all of us for our great good. Open our eyes that we can see God. Spirit, that's your role here. Illumine the truth. Move us. Open our eyes. Give, give clarity and fluidity to my words that they would be understandable, that they would point each of us to you. They are simple human words that have no power apart from you. And so, Spirit of God, would you please draw near and speak. Build your church. Grow your people. Make us new. Honor Christ. And as a result, Lord, would you, this morning, would you be honored and would you make this new people then happy Blessed. A more serious word, perhaps rejoicing in you. We pray that you would illumine the truth about Jesus and that you would, with that truth, humble us. And from that place of humility, that you would lift us up in great joy. Take us all the way to the end there, Spirit of God, please. Show us Christ, 
Show us ourselves humble. And then lift us up in joy before him. Do this work, I pray. Build your church and honor the Son. It's in his name that we ask it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Luke chapter 7. Our recent focus leading up to this point has been on Jesus' extended teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. We spent several weeks, a couple of months almost, looking at how Luke presents this sermon to us, with the central focus being on the character of a disciple of Jesus. As he presents to us, Jesus presents to us, here's what my followers, my disciples are like. Followers of me love like me. They love others, even their enemies. That was the central point, but the conclusion of the sermon, last part of chapter 6, where we were two weeks ago, is then a call to obedience from the heart. That's not the main focus, but it's the conclusion. Jesus' final parable, in fact, shows us two houses, paralleling two people, two houses that are essentially indistinguishable from the outside. They look just the same. They both equally give an outward formal allegiance to Jesus, but they are not, in fact, identical. One has a foundation. One has a hidden part, like the heart. One has a hidden foundation that has, changing the metaphor back to the heart, that has stored up in the heart, that at great cost has built into the heart the truths of the promises of God to us, his people in Christ. And that kind of heart, that kind of house with a foundation, is the only one that stands up against the flood that comes, the flood of trouble in life and ultimately the flood of judgment at the end. So the point at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is a call from Jesus to examine ourselves, to examine our hearts by looking at our obedience. Like fruit hanging on a branch shows you what kind of tree you have. Obedience hanging on the branch shows you what kind of heart you have. And so, attend to your heart by looking first at your obedience to even the most difficult calls, like love your enemy. And run it back to the heart and say, oh, my heart fixed on Christ alone is what enables me to love. I see lack of love, attend to my heart then. And fix it on Christ. It's the Sermon on the Mount, and that's what leads us into chapter 7, where we begin again to move through with Luke, to move through Jesus' activities. And the first thing that Luke shows us is an example of the kind of man Luke, Luke just said Jesus was talking about. The kind of man that has a heart fixed on Christ. He introduces us here to a centurion, and is going to show us through this centurion's interaction with Jesus the following main point. Here's what I'm working towards this morning. Only faith in Christ makes us worthy before Christ. Only faith in Christ makes us worthy before Christ. We're going to see that in the life of the centurion. Let me read the passage, chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Then I'll make just a couple of brief observations to make a couple of the details clear before drawing out three main points. Here's Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. 
Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Luke chapter 7. Jesus comes down from the hills, the mountain where he was preaching, comes down from the hills and heads into nearby Capernaum, a place where, as we have seen before, if you recall from earlier chapters of Luke. He'd been in Capernaum a lot, had teached, healed quite a few people in many different times there in Capernaum, even in the synagogue there. And in verse 2, we're introduced to a centurion who is an officer in the Roman army and therefore is a Gentile. He's not Jewish. However, as verse 5 tells us, he is fond of it. It says he loves the nation of Israel and has been generous with them from his own funds, built the synagogue there in town, funded the building of the synagogue. Probably because in some way he was attracted to the faith of the Old Testament. It's commonly how Gentiles became friends of the Jewish people, not just because they liked the food and the culture and whatnot, but because something about the the faith of the people, the faith of the Old Testament as they were hearing about that God was drawing them. That's probably where the centurion is. And when his servant gets very sick, he hears about this Jewish teacher, Jesus, whom he has heard of, and he sends a delegation to ask him to come and heal. And that encounter between that, that, those, that group of delegates, that delegation, that encounter between them and Jesus is what brings us to our three observations for the morning. Here's the first one. A warning to us. This is the longer of the three. So don't worry about the time. This is going to take a little while. There are three. They are not of equal length. Beware the common but false presumption of personal worthiness before God. Beware the common but false presumption of personal worthiness before God. It is the way of the world. It is common to all people in themselves to presume either that we already are good, deserving, worthy of God's kindness and worthy of God's help and worthy of God's blessing, so that when you talk to me about his blessings, I think naturally, sure, they belong to me. They should come to me either already or to think that I can pursue that. I can pursue worthiness and attain it. 
such that when evaluated, the verdict of good and worthy will fall on me. Personal worthiness. That's the issue here. It comes up three times in verses 4, 6, and 7. Consider first verse 4. The delegation. It approaches Jesus and voices its opinion. They pleaded with Jesus earnestly. They are tugging on him. They're twisting his arm. Pressing. Strongly arguing their case. This man is worthy to have you do this for him. He deserves to have you come heal his servant. We know him, and as we state his case, we're going to show you, Jesus, that this is right, this is what you should do. And here's why. Verse 5, for he loves our nation. He's the one who built us our synagogue. Jesus, you're Jewish, we're Jewish. We know that you've been sent from God to help the Jewish people. Well, here's this guy. He loves the Jewish people. He loves us, and he's been extremely helpful to us. And by what he is in his attitude and by what he's done for us, he's shown that he is worthy of your help. You should do this. That's the way the delegation approaches him. That's the way they think about this man. They think about his need, and they think about Jesus and what he should do. It's the way these men see the world. It's the way the world sees the world. Let us look at our attitudes and our actions, says the world. Sometimes explicitly, and when not explicitly, in the heart. Let us look at our attitudes and our actions. Let us evaluate who we are and how we have used our time and our money and our energy and how obedient we've been and how loving of other people we've been and how generous and how good we've been. And at some point in some way, the line moves depending on who's drawing it and for whom you're drawing it. But in some way, at some time, the world says, there, that's good. And he's done it. We've done it. I've done it. We are then deserving people. We are good people. And your job then, Jesus, your job, God, is to do good to those who are good. To do right by those who have done right by you have shown themselves to be deserving of this. And sometimes, as the world pursues that, sometimes it ends up very wide and very permissive, thus thinking that most people, or maybe even all people, are worthy of such blessing and help from Jesus. Yeah, yeah of course we mess up. I know we're not perfect. We do bad things, but Jesus loves us. That's his job. God loves and so, of course, he does good to us. That's what people should get. People are precious to God, and God should give them always good and never harm, and no bad should ever come, and no trouble should ever come to people. The God of love should protect and should save in the end, and there should be no such thing as judgment and no such thing as hell, certainly not. Sometimes that's how the world looks at it. And then that nonsense gets blown apart, sometimes literally by a bomb or some other kind of violence or extreme evil, and the world says, well, maybe not everybody. Maybe not everybody is deserving of God's help and God's kindness and God's goodness. And so then it sets to draw a line. Well, let's draw a line somewhere. And then the world sets out to define good. Never mind that we can't agree on what is good. 
Some of the people setting off bombs think that's good. We can't agree on what's good, but we're going to attempt to draw a line. Every religion in the world and every philosophical system and every ethical way of proceeding in life attempts to draw a line and then sets us all to working. Here's what you should do to be a good person. Here's how you establish your own worthiness and become one who deserves good and deserves blessing from God. And so we will hold up sometimes deliberately write out and hold up a list. Here's one who loves. Here's one who gives money to a good cause, to a church maybe. Here's a man who pays tithing, who refrains from unhealthy behaviors, who attends meetings and services regularly, who responds to God's calling on his life. Here's one who reads the scriptures and gives to help others and sings in the choir and helps in the nursery and is kind to neighbors and works hard at her job. And, 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 and. That is common. Sometimes explicitly written down on a list. But when not so explicit, that's how the world works. That's how people in the world pursue life. I do and then I should get. That is common. And what follows from that? is an obligating of God to do right by me. We rarely understand this. It is the common posture of humankind to stand before God and believe that we deserve from Him. He should provide rain tomorrow. He should give me breath in this next second. That is the way of the world. Now, I'm talking about the way of the world, and I know I'm talking to a group of people here who as you listen to that, you by and large think that is really wrong. And I already know that's really wrong. I already get that. That is the way of the world. Thank goodness that's just the way of the world. Hold on. That is in the church too. That way of thinking is right here in the room. Not officially, of course. We would reject it. We know that there is a standard that's not an arbitrary drawing of a line we know we, we can't be, officially we know that we can't be good before God. However, ask yourself a question. Think about yourself. And understand here, what I'm not trying to do here, I'm not trying to bring around to you, the church, an indictment. I'm trying, I hope, to peel back something and show you, oh, that which is clearly wrong out there still lives in me, and it's wrong in me too. And if you were to follow this all the way through and get to the end, I, I hope that you'll be able to grab this thing that's in you still and take it out. And what'll happen, not just you'll not, you won't just be better, you'll take this out 
and there will be great relief there because the question you need to ask yourself is, when you find God's standard, you have God's word, you know God's standard, you know what God's required, do you find yourself striving after obedience and burdened under the striving? How many of us labor and with felt burden in that laboring to here's God's standard, I know God's word, and I'm laboring, I'm striving after it and burdened under it. Or indignant and frustrated in the striving. Maybe you identify with the burden. Maybe you identify with the... Because I, I strive, the help doesn't flow. Is that you? I see what God requires, and my goodness... I did, and I was, and I attended, and I gave, and I prayed, and I read, and so, Jesus, you should have healed, restored, blessed, satisfied, prospered. I have heard Christians say these things. Christians say these things. I've done everything I can, just like that. What does that reveal? I've... I've I try to pray. I try to wait on you. I'm trying to hope on you. I'm trying to repent of every sin I can think of and to avoid sin before it comes to me. I'm trying. I, I, what else is there to do? But the cancer came back, and my spouse still left me, and the job still collapsed. The debt still piled up. You still didn't bring a mate to me. Ah, Maybe it's indignation or frustration. Or a soft way of putting that is, but it's still came despair what else is there to do I've done all that I can and it still came and where are you this is right you're supposed to you're supposed to be my help you're supposed to respond you're supposed to come I've done what I can and you didn't or I've realized that I can't do, and I haven't. And the wreckage that is my life is what I'm stuck with. If you're a Christian, if you walk through those questions in your life, what you find there is, just like the world... I operate under a paradigm. I work under a system of dealing with God that says, I do, then you do. And when I do, and you don't do, I got questions. That's not how it's supposed to work. That's the way of the world. Right there. It is common to all of us. It is common to our hearts. A belief that we either stand worthy before God or can get there if we will just do and be enough harder. 
It is tragic. It is tragic. This is why I'm not saying this to indict you or to whack you. I would hope that seeing this in some way you would identify that is me, that is how I approach God. I do think of it like that. I do find myself in the moments of, of, of sorrow and the moments of frustration, the moments of, of angst. I do find myself there, hmm, that you would notice that and then something would be removed here. I would, I would hope. This is tragic. And it is common and it is wrong, and we can tell that from the centurion's assessment of himself, of which Jesus approves. This idea of being deserving or being worthy, it appears in verse 4, as we said, but it also shows up again in verses 6 and 7, where the centurion has a different assessment of himself. No, I am not worthy, he says. The centurion does not consider himself worthy to have Jesus come into his house, and he didn't presume, that's the English word in my translation, the way you could render it is consider himself worthy. He didn't presume to be worthy of coming into Jesus' presence himself. So the centurion's assessment, Jesus commends if that's right. And he says, I'm not worthy. He didn't intend his good works to be earning his own worthiness or any kind of of merit before God. All of this approach about what I do and therefore what God does for me, all of this approach of I become someone who deserves, it is all wrong. There is nothing in us and nothing that we do. No good works come from us that we offer to him. Whatever we say, whatever we do, whatever we think, whatever we feel, as right as it may be, it is still wrong because it is tainted by us. It is fallen in us. There is no one righteous, no, not one, and nothing that we do is righteous, pure and holy. And I say that to you, and I know that most people sitting, most of you guys sitting right here are saying, well, sure, yeah. Luke, right back five minutes ago, the indignation and the despair and the confusion, yes, I know you know that, but no, you don't know that. I heard recently, and again, I'm not saying this to, to bring conviction upon you or anything. So if this, if this was you, then don't feel bad about this. Just be aware. I heard recently a discussion of some people in our church, in our church, talking about prayer. Somebody was talking about, somebody was talking about, people were talking about prayer. This is a few steps down the line here. I don't know who it was. And the discussion about prayer left them burdened and feeling guilty because of all that they were seeing prayer was supposed to be. What's behind that? Those, those folks in that conversation would have, every single one of them said, nothing I do makes me worthy. I, I don't earn my way into God's favor. They would have said, absolutely underlined it, bold, highlighted it, and then feel, ugh, about this discussion about prayer. 
a burden, crushed down, beaten down by it because there's everything that I'm supposed to be as a prayer, all things I'm supposed to pray about, all the ways I'm supposed to approach God, supposed to, supposed to, supposed to, and I don't. Ugh. That's revealing something about you. That you think of, I do, and then God does, and I haven't, and so God won't. No. 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 We have to cut this out of our understanding of the Christian life. Cut out obedience? No, I didn't say that. Cut out the understanding that I do, I obey, and then therefore God does. I don't obligate him. I don't lever him. I don't leverage him. To get there, we need to see what the centurion saw, which is the second point. We are humbled in our unworthiness when we see the matchless authority of Jesus. We are humbled in our unworthiness when we see the matchless authority of Jesus. Jesus begins to travel towards the house with the delegation. In verse 6, the centurion sends another group to dissuade him from coming. Maybe he heard about how the first conversation went. He persuades, he dissuades Jesus from coming due to his own personal unworthiness, as he says in verses 6 and 7. But he does still ask him to heal the servant by a word. I know you can do that. And he explains how he knows Jesus can do that. Verse 8, For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, servants under me, and by my word my will gets done. The centurion is saying that he understands something about Jesus, that he too, like Jesus, is one set under authority, the right exercise of power, rightful rule, authority. The centurion sees himself as set under authority, that is, in a rightful chain of command. Ding, 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 ding. And beneath an authority of which he is the rightful designated authority, so he passes it on down. When he says to a soldier who's beneath him, do this, a servant do that, it happens. And an onlooker, important here, an onlooker, could look at that scenario happening and could understand who's who. These soldiers obey him. That must mean he's their officer. He with them obeys this guy. That must mean that he's a higher officer, a general maybe. All of them obey that one. It must mean that he's a governor. All of them obey that one. It must mean he's the Caesar. An onlooker can understand who's who by looking at what obeys, what group obeys who. You can figure out the chain of command. 
The centurion says, I too, like you, Jesus, am set under authority. Flip it around. You also, like me, are set under authority, and I'm watching, and I figured out some things. Verse 3 says that he heard, of, he heard about Jesus. Certainly it means he heard Jesus was in town, but he heard that Jesus was in town, and he knows something about Jesus. He's seen and heard some things about him in Capernaum and in the surrounding area. He has seen Jesus exercise authority, and so he reasons backwards. Chain of command. If you command, what have we seen so far in Luke? If you, Jesus, command the illnesses and the unclean spirits in a great multitude of people, chapter 6, verse 18, and they all obey you. And if you command the withered hand of a man, chapter 6, verse 10, and it obeys you. And if you command the total body paralysis of a man, chapter 5, verse 24, and it obeys you. And if you command leprosy, leprosy, the scriptures are clear, no one but God ever commands leprosy. You command leprosy and it obeys you. And you command the fish of the sea and they obey you. And you speak to a demon in this very synagogue that I built with my own money. You speak to a demon and it comes out of a man as you command it. It obeys you. I'm an onlooker looking at the chain of command and I figured out something. I have heard and I have even seen demons obey you, disease obeys you, blindness obeys you, paralysis obeys you, creatures obey you, everything obeys you. Everything on the earth and in the earth and under the earth obeys your voice, does what you say. You have untold, matchless authority. And I understand authority. It always comes from somewhere. There's an end to it. And your authority is so wide and so vast. What comes out of your mouth must be the Word of God. I get something about you. Authority. You who speak, you are in high, high authority. He perhaps does not understand that he's God in the flesh but he understands way up the chain of command. And before that, I am unworthy. I have no delusion that I offer up anything that is, that is going to lever you in, in, into a position that I want you to, to get into so that you'll have to do something for me. I can't obligate you. You speak the words of God Almighty who is no debtor to anyone. This is the matchless authority of Jesus. And you have to see this because this is the observation came to the centurion. When he sees that, that is what humbles him. That's what puts him in the right place of actually, not just intellectually understanding, but actually walking in his own unworthiness.
This is how he comes to know in, in a perceived, deep and gripping way, to know that he is unworthy and Christ reigns. So look at that. Christian, look at that. In your own self, hold up in front of your eyes all that has been seen so far of Jesus. This far in the Scriptures we've seen, this far in the, in the book of Luke we've seen, all that the centurion has seen, this one is a great king. But you've seen more than that because you've seen this king, you've seen the end of the book, You've seen this king lifted up on a cross with a crown of thorns, a king killed and buried, and then triumphing in untold power over the final enemy of death, lifted out of the grave, alive again. This is the one who opened the graves in Jerusalem after his resurrection. This is the one who ascended in power on high, the one who is going to come again to judge everyone. He is the king, and this is what must be seen by us if we are to first be, be humbled, actually humbled, not just know you're supposed to be humbled, but to be humbled beneath the authority of this king. This is what we must actually speak to the world also, the world that assumes it is worthy, or by a little bit of work can become so. We do the world a great disservice when we lead with and major in talking about the blessings of God. We must indeed talk about the blessings of God. must indeed talk about the hope of God. But when we major on that and lead with that, we feed the world what it already thinks it should get. We must speak with two hands of the authority of Christ and the unworthiness of people and of the blessing of God. So look at this king. Fix your eyes on it. This is what should then lead us to humility. But, as much as it is important to press that point, that is not the final point. Because that still leaves us with their basic problem. I can't approach God. If I had this idea that I make myself worthy to go stand before God and then he does good to me, and what I've just seen is the authority of God that says, nope, that can never happen, then here's where I'm left. I'm stuck unworthy before God, cannot approach him. If we stop there, we are still left with our problem and we haven't quite finished the passage. Thankfully, those two things get resolved in the third point. We finish the passage and we find there the solution to this dilemma of I cannot, I'm not worthy before God. I understand your authority and I am not worthy. That should humble us. The third point should draw us. And you need to understand both, which is why 
incidentally, which is why I'm, I'm not going to go light or quick on the second point. You need to understand both. He is God. And then the third point is stunning. Third, we are called to approach Jesus unworthy, but in humble faith. We are called to approach Jesus unworthy, not after we've made ourselves worthy. We're called to approach Jesus unworthy, but in humble faith. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. This is remarkable, says Jesus. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such a remarkable understanding of my authority. That's not what it says. What's remarkable is the faith. Why the faith? Most of the words have been about the authority. The previous verses, the previous couple sentences are about the, the centurion understanding the, the authority thing and where, where Jesus stands in relation to those beneath him and where the centurion stands. He, he's talking about authority. Why does he move to faith? It's not because Jesus finds remarkable faith that I can heal the servant. Countless people have that kind of faith. The delegation itself came to Jesus believing he could heal him. Multitudes of people have come to Jesus believing he can heal him. The four guys who lowered the paralytic through the roof tore apart the roof because they believed Jesus could heal him. Countless people believe that. That's not the deal. So why is Jesus amazed at the centurion's faith? What's amazing about the faith? Because, here's what's amazing, the soldier fully gets the second point. The soldier squares up against Jesus, looks right at him and understands, I know you to be the king. You have authority. And then that means the soldier squares up to himself, and therefore I understand that I have no leg to stand on, and I have nothing in my hands to use in argument. I'm unworthy. He is deeply humbled because he understands Jesus, therefore understands himself. He's deeply humbled. However, he is correctly humbled. Jesus does not mean for us to be humbled and just cast down and left in the dust. He is correctly humbled, unlike anybody else in the scriptures so far, he is correctly humbled in what he does with that understanding. He approached Jesus anyway. And he asked him to heal bringing nothing in his hands without a leg to stand on. 
He didn't say anything like, look what I've done. That's what the delegation said. And Jesus is not impressed. But he says, this Gentile approaches and says, there's no reason you should do this and many reasons you shouldn't, but I'm going to ask you anyway twice. Both delegations, same message. Please heal. I'm going to ask you to heal with nothing in my hands I'm going to ask you to heal knowing your authority and knowing my unworthiness, but, here's the unstated part, believing more, believing that you are merciful to the poor in spirit. First beatitude. Believing that you, you king, you high authority, you are kind and merciful to the evil and ungodly, the, the unworthy like me. Also from the Sermon on the Mount. I believe that about you also. I believe you are the one who can heal. You have all authority. You command everything here on the earth. You can heal. And I believe something about your character, your inclination. I believe that you are the one who will heal those who come to you lowly dependent on you only. He does not come in arrogance. He comes in, in humble faith. He is not just humbled as crushed down. He is humbled into faith that says, empty-handed, I come and ask you in mercy to fill my hands. I come and ask you to give to me. The soldier has seen something of Jesus and understands not just his authority, but understands his mercy and his desire to give mercifully to the poor in spirit, to the humble. There is nothing in us. There's only one who ever was worthy, Jesus himself. Only Jesus himself. He's the only one who could ever stand before God and say, here's the list, and I did it. All of it, perfectly. The only one worthy to receive every smile and every favor and every blessing and every good from God himself. And in the end, he was denied it all and made unworthy before God because of us, for us, on behalf of us. This is the glory of the gracious God. How many times a day have I said, and if you were taking notes, there'd be a hundred times you would have written this down, we are unworthy, we don't deserve, we are nothing, we can't do anything, Absolutely, absolutely, and here is the glory of the gracious God that in Christ, because of the cross of Christ, because of what God did, because of the work of God, not your own work, because of the work of God in Christ, in crucifying Him and raising Him from the dead, by His work, 
What has he done? In yourself, in your personal worthiness, there is nothing. But in the work of Christ for you, he has made you to stand worthy before God. Not because of anything over here, not because of anything you had done or could do, but because of Christ and Christ alone, you stand worthy. You who believe in humble faith like this centurion, who see the authority of God and see the mercy of God displayed, enacted, carried out on the cross, and trust that, grab hold of that. He says to you, worthy, and has then therefore obligated himself We have no hope. We can never obligate him. We have no ground to stand on, no leg to stand on. But he has obligated himself and said of you, mine, like a father adopts a child, mine, and I cannot, I am not permitted to. I would break my own oath. I cannot, I must, I should Defend this one. Bless this one. Help this one. Always do good to this one. Ultimately deliver this one from every trouble and trial and bring him or her safely home. You are not worthy and have no obligation on him. You are incredibly worthy and have every obligation on him only because of what he has done graciously for you in Jesus. This is the grace of God. It is the glory of God. He has adopted you and has sworn to deliver you, you who cast all hope on his mercy alone and give up any attempt at personal worthiness. That you would see this, Christian, the world would see this. Here's the part lifted out. And that what would happen is that you would cease striving Stop trying to work yourself good. You can't. Stop trying to obey yourself good. You can't. That's not an indictment. That's a relief. Do you realize? Think that through. That's supposed to be a relief. A relief. You can't order your life well enough to get on God's good side. Stop trying. And thank God and rejoice and be glad that you already are on God's good side because of Christ for you who believe. Rejoice and be glad. Men and women, the Christian life has nothing to do with you doing so that God will do. Absolutely, we are to do. The Bible is full of commands. Of course. Indeed. We could talk a whole lot about obedience. Please, though, please, will you take out, will you look at directly, maybe follow your feelings of indignation or frustration or despair, burden, follow those to the the nut inside of you that says, I'm working on the world's way of deservedness and worthiness, and take that out 
and relieve yourself of the burden so that then you can pursue obedience from faith and in joy. In joy. The song says, nothing in your hands you bring, simply to the cross you cling. You don't come with anything, but you cling to the cross. Foul indeed, foul, that's dirty, unworthy you are. Foul, I to the fountain fly to be washed. Run to the fountain, wash me, Savior, or I die. That is true. And by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not because of any personal worthiness or anything that you have done, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, He has done that for you. Come to Christ. Unworthy crystal clear on that. Even exulting in that. Because that would then in your own mind and in the, in the eyes of others would lift up the one who gives you warrant to stand there. Christ. Only by Christ can you stand before Him worthy. And in Christ you can stand before Him worthy. That's good news. Let me pray. Father, would you help us? Would you help us as we, with the different pieces of this and the different places that we are as we wrestle, would you help us if we have been pierced, convicted in some way, would you help us? we have senses that are dull and do not see the wonder of what you've done on the cross, help us. Would you help us on Tuesday and next Friday when we find ourselves in, in the position of performing, worried that you will not bless? Help us then. Father, please draw near to your people. Draw near to all of us, me included. And give us relief. A robust relief that comes from seeing your mercy to us, people who do not deserve it, but for whom it is really real. Give us joy in that and release in that. Lift up your people's hearts towards you. Build praise in us for you. Create a lightness in our step as we then follow you. 
Help us, Lord. Father, your children, I pray. As we take the communion elements in our hands now, would you remind us of what they're about? Would you continue to meet with us? Encourage, build up, correct, whatever is needed. Do that in the midst of this, your people, now I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.